And at first I decided that I wasn't going to publish the book. I, you know, I kind of had all this self-doubt and, you know, thought that uh, who would listen to me? You know, I, I had this heart attack. Um, but then as I, as I, you know, experienced the aftermath of the heart attack, you know, thankfully you know, I survived and the people who saved my life were, did a wonderful job. Um, and, uh, and I've had a hundred percent recovery, but I was faced with this, this dilemma, you know, in the hospital, um, you know, is, is it, was it to follow the recommendations, which I thought were absolutely terrible, um, based on everything I, I learned, you know, on, on how to heal my heart or should I, you know, take everything I've learned and, and, and do that. Welcome to the Drew Perlman show. Think of this podcast as the antidote to the fear, the noise, and the talking heads in the news. The show features an entertaining blend of ancient wisdom, empowering ideas, and cutting edge, healthy living science to optimize your health and your life. All right, so let's dive in and get started. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Stephen Hussey. Dr. Hussey is a chiropractor, functional medicine practitioner, and online health coach. He's the author of the new book called Understanding the Heart uncommon insights into our most commonly diseased organ. And I know we're going to dive deep into that book. Dr. Hussey, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So, so you wrote this incredible book, which I was telling you, I've been, I've been reading and really, really enjoying and, and learning a ton from. And just so I get the timeline straight, Dr. Hussey, so you were writing your book on the heart, and I know it was about a year ago when you had a really severe heart attack. Were you actually writing the book when you had the heart attack? Uh, no, the book was finished. Um, uh, at the time I had the heart attack, uh, I was working to self-publish it at that time. And I hadn't, I hadn't self-published it yet, though. Wow. And, and, it, and it was, as you described in the book, I mean, this was a widow maker. And, and as you say, only 12% outside the hospital setting usually survive. One of your three major arteries was actually blocked. Yeah, the the major one, the left anterior descending artery was uh, was blocked uh, from a a clot that formed uh, on that day. Uh, Yeah, and yeah, only, you know, it's the most serious heart attack. And um, if you're not in the hospital when it happens, only 12% of people actually survive those, get to the hospital and get intervention in time. Unbelievable. So, So writing this book, literally called understanding the heart what drove you to write that book did you have a sense that something wasn't right in your body or what kind of led you up to the writing of the book yeah so i've spent a lot of my life trying to figure out um heart disease and just learn as much as i can about it because of my past health history so um i had a lot of inflammatory conditions as a child um everything from irritable bowel syndrome to, I used to break out in chronic hives all over my body. I had terrible allergies and asthma and, and things like that. And, um, ultimately that inflammation, um, led to autoimmune type one diabetes. Uh, I was diagnosed with that at age nine and, you know, throughout the years seeing different doctors and things, uh, you know, I got the sense that I was heavily predisposed to heart disease because of that condition. Um, but you know that the better I took care of myself and managed that condition that, uh, the, the better, uh, my chances were of not having heart disease, but I, I, you know, throughout my education and, and, um, and everything, I always tried to learn as much as I could about heart disease. And I came across a lot of interesting things, um, and things that, uh, I, I was never told by a medical professional, um, about the heart uh, or how to keep it healthy. And, uh, and so I started 
sharing these ideas and, and writing them down. Um, and you know, I, I, people seemed to enjoy it and they liked it. And, and, but then, you know, I had, I had this, this heart attack and this thing I was trying to prevent and, um, and it was completely, you know, shocking to me, uh, a little demoralizing. And at first I decided that I wasn't going to publish the book. I, you know, I kind of had all this self doubt and, you know, thought that, uh, who would listen to me? You know, I, I had this heart attack. Um, but then as I, as I, you know, experienced the aftermath of the heart attack, you know, thankfully you know, I survived and the people who saved my life were, did a wonderful job. Um, and, uh, and I've had a hundred percent recovery, but I was faced with this, this dilemma, you know, in the hospital, um, you know, is, is it, was it to follow the recommendations, which I thought were absolutely terrible, um, based on everything I, I learned, you know, on, on how to heal my heart or should I, you know, take everything I've learned and, and, and do that. And so, um, I wrote all about the heart attack in the book. Uh, I, I made some changes to the book to include that, you know, um, but ultimately everything I wrote stays, stay the same because after I experienced what they in the hospital, like what they were telling me to do, it was completely wrong. And I just felt like I had to release this book because there's so many people that are going to be sitting there in my shoes, um, being told the same things. And it's just, it's got a little bit scary, um, that that's the approach that we have based on the information that I've learned about the heart, understanding what it is, why it's there, what its function is. Um, and there's just a complete misunderstanding of it, I think, within the medical community. And so I felt like I, I kind of felt compelled to still release it, even though I had all this self-doubt. Mm, that's so great. Uh, I'm going to call you Stephen because just just calling you again, Dr. Hussey, again, it sounds like I'm at you know, my doctor's office or something like that. So <laughs> yeah. I hope that's okay, Steve. No worries. That's fine. <laughs> um, so yeah. And, and, and in terms of all this, the information you were given, it was interesting how you said, you know, when you were recovering at the hospital, the doctors explained, you know, that elevated LDL was the cause of your heart attack. And it's interesting because, you know, in my own studies, um, Steve, and I'm, I'm sure you came across the same thing, but blaming LDL cholesterol is like blaming the ambulance that kind of shows up to, to pick you up and take you to the hospital. Um, and, and you said that they were, they, they offered you 11, 11 different medicines at the time, 11 mm -hmm. different medications. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, like it, it was, uh, it was quite shocking that the approach, you know, and, and, you know, there's a narrow-minded focus on this cholesterol and LDL hypothesis. And my main goal in the book um, and in all my work is really to just broaden the conversation about heart disease and how it's it's much more than that and how we can be doing much more for people by educating them on what I think are the true risk factors for heart disease. And and I don't believe that you know one single number, LDL, is is the the thing we should be tracking or at least the only thing we should be tracking there's way more to it uh, to heart disease there's way more to a blood panel there's way more to um all the different environmental factors that contribute to heart disease and so it's just you know when i was in the hospital and that's all they kept saying to me i just kept saying well, what about this what about that and they were just saying well like they just completely wrote it off instead of wondering why someone my age um, with my health history and my you know, level of fitness and health, um, how I looked from the outside, um, wondering, wondering why this happened. And they just wrote it off as that and didn't really have time or the desire to look into any possible other solution. Um, and so it's just my whole goal is to broaden the, the conversation about heart disease and really educate people on what are the risk factors, what are the things they should be looking at in their lives. 
um, because their only approach was to throw a bunch of medications at me. Um, literally 11 medications were prescribed and they weren't even, you know, people are familiar with the term informed consent. Um, and I was being expected to consent without having been explained any of the reason why these medications were being prescribed. And I mean, I could, I could deduct that it was you know, because I just had a heart attack, but it's like, what are they trying to accomplish um, with these medications? And I was, you know, somewhat familiar with some of the medications. Um, and, uh, and so I, I could deduct again what they were trying to accomplish, but no one came in and explained to me, this is why you're taking this. This is why you're taking that. Um, and ultimately I, I only took, um, maybe one or two uh, of the medications that they prescribed. Um, but it was just very clear they had one approach. And, and when I started questioning that approach, they got very confused and sometimes frustrated. And, and all I was trying to do was get information. I just, I wanted, you know, I valued their opinion. Uh, I wanted to know what they thought so I can make the decision, the best decision going forward. Um, but anytime I questioned them or even not, not questioned them, just asked why this was being recommended or that or whatever, they got really defensive um, or just confused and didn't really answer the question. And, and it was, you know, it was the attendings, but also some of the like the heart failure nurses and the cardiac rehab nurses like um, that came in and talked to me. They were just very confused about my questions and it just it just led me to believe there's this huge misunderstanding about um, what what creates heart health and and you know people could say well you had a heart attack why do you, how do you know and and that's a fair point when um, I would just have them say well you know read the book because there's lots of data um, and information and, and research that suggests um, a different understanding um, of of the heart and heart disease and um, and I've used my own experience to kind of um, I guess it's kind of solidified my views, um, my own experience with having a heart attack and, and experiencing what's in the hospital. It's, it's solidified it, all my views that I have uh, in my book. So, so yeah. Mm. So, and it sounded like just from reading that, I mean, you, you, as you said, they, they offered you 11 different medications. You took just a couple. Uh, I mean, did you feel pressured to, to do sort of their you know, what was prescribed to you? Did you feel, did you feel, and, and you come at it, you know, having done all this research, I mean, I guess the average person who's in there, you know, is, is not going to have that kind of insight that you did, but did, did you feel pressured to, to take what was being prescribed? Definitely. Um, not in any kind of like, uh, you know, aggressive way or anything like that. But I was just told over and over again that the only way my heart would ever have a chance of fully recovering or recovering at all was time, rest, and medications. Um, and so that was just, that was the the broken record that I heard over and over again from everybody who came in. And, you know, I kept asking questions and they kept not knowing the answers or not wanting to give an answer or, or whatever. Um, but it was always that. It was, but it was, it was almost like a fear-based thing. It wasn't like, aggressive or angry. It was just like, you will not recover. You will develop heart failure if you don't take these medications. Right. Um, and that's not true, uh, because mm. I, I did my own, you know, heart healing, uh, routine, uh, once I got home, uh, and, and I took one of the medications they asked for about a month or two. And I took another one for about six months because there was a stent in my body now. And that's something that I needed to account for. Um, but my heart is fully recovered, um, despite not taking any of the other medications that they asked of me. And quite honestly, the cardiologist I saw was pretty shocked when my, my echocardiogram came back uh, normal um, after three months. Um, so, 
I, I'm proud. I, I can't say that's the case for everybody, um, or that that would be the case. But it, clearly, there's a different there's a different approach. Um, one that doesn't involve all the side effects of the medications that they were going to give me. And I'm not saying that medications are all bad, um, and sometimes they're needed. But if that's the only thing you have, then everything you know everything looks like it needs to be treated with that. And there's many other things that people could be doing to help their heart recover in that situation or keep it healthy in general. Um, and I just, I, I really want to share that with everyone because of, because I know that everyone's, uh, who has that experience, like I did, is going to be in that same situation. Mm. Well, and I, and I love how you write in the book that you sort of saw very up close and personal, the two faces of modern medicine, because, you know, you say in the book, you fully acknowledge they saved your life with the stent. And as you say, with the synthetic insulin for diabetes, but you, you also say that it's, and I love how you said this, shockingly unenlightened about what creates optimal health. Yeah. And that's the big disconnect is that, is that yes, in an emergency situation, you know, the hospital is where you want to be, um, especially, especially in the United States. You know, they are very, very good at saving lives. Um, and in that situation, I don't care what they put into my body, you know, do whatever you have to do to save my life. And that's what they did. Um, and, uh, but after the fact, you know, what they, they, you know, what to do to optimize your health after that, um, or to optimize the recovery of the body, whatever part of the body it may be, it's just very, very short sighted. There's been no time spent on that, um, within the profession. Um, and I hear it over and over again, you know, in medical school, you don't really learn anything about that. You don't really learn about what creates health. You learn about what, how to how to uh, treat disease um, once it gets to a disease state. Well, how do we prevent the disease from happening in the first place? That's the question um, that we should be asking, and what physicians should be trained in. Um, but instead, it's how do you react to disease once it happens, uh, and that's uh, that's the, kind of the wrong approach, I think. Um, it's very reactionary rather than than uh, preventative. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's ex and I I kind of knew what to expect when I went to the hospital because I was familiar with that kind of idea that that's the way Western medicine was. Um, but it was just the, the most shocking thing to me was that I was expressing, you know, concerns with the care or just had questions about the care um, or what I was being recommended to do afterwards. Um, but the shocking thing to me was just the shutdown of conversation. Um, mm. You know, it wasn't even it, it wasn't even the fact that that was what they were recommending because I, I expected that. It was just that they were not open minded enough to even sit down and have a conversation with me and entertain the idea that maybe there's something else I could do. And that may just be that that they just don't know um, that there's anything else. They they've been told that this is the the only way to do it. This is the only way to get people healthy, and this is the best we have. Um, but it just it, it kind of it kind of reminds me of like uh, kind of how I see like um, a public school system or just the learning that that creates, where it's just like you memorize and regurgitate and you forget. You know, like that's kind of how I think it works. You you memorize stuff to pass a test and then you pretty much forget it. You're never, never really trained to think mm -hmm. um, or open your mind. You know, and it's the same thing in medical school, it sounds like, um, where you 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 learn all these facts and figures about the body, how to prescribe this, how to try that, what do you do in this situation, that situation, but you never learn, you never really trained to think um, outside the box. You're trained to think clinically and what could this mean or what could that mean um but to think about how the body works and and how there could be different um ideas about how the body works and that and that there may be a different approach to different diseases 
is kind of trained out of you in, in medical school. And I think that's a, a big problem. Mm. So you bring up some really interesting, I mean, I think it's going to sort of blow people's minds when they read some of the things you say about the heart and how misunderstood the heart is. But um, Stephen, if you had to share maybe the biggest sort of misunderstanding or, you know, misconception that people have of the heart, what would it be? Uh, I, I, I think my favorite one is that everybody, it's kind of like conventional wisdom that, you know, the heart is this pumping organ and that it's, it's solely responsible for moving the blood throughout the body. Uh, and that's its job. And, you know, when you go into, when you get like any kind of medical training, you learn that, you know, the movement of muscles and the one way valves in the veins also help, you know, direct blood where it needs to go um, and things like that. But that, that you pretty much learn that the heart is this pump that forcefully pumps blood throughout the entire body. And there's just a lot of evidence, you know, uh, whether it's, anecdotal evidence or actual literature research that suggests that that's not the case. Um, and, and, but if you think about it too, from an engineering point of view, like a heart, the size of ours, um, you know, to be able to pump blood throughout a body, the size of ours, it's, it's literally impossible, um, to create that much force and keep the blood moving. And so there's, you know, the heart does do some pumping you know, a little bit, just, but no more really than enough to get the blood through the heart, you know, pump it in and out of the ventricles and, and atria. Um, other than that, the blood has to kind of move on its own or has another mechanism by which it moves. But that's the biggest thing. And, and to me, that was the, one of the biggest things I wanted to bring to light about, about what they were recommending for my recovery, because a big, a big problem after a heart attack is that people, um, can develop heart failure because heart muscle is damaged and the heart has to make changes and it can change its shape and remodel itself. And that can lead to heart failure. Um, and so you know, one of my biggest concerns with, with me and not developing heart failure, um, was to make sure that the heart was functioning optimally like it's supposed to. And if we don't understand the true function of the heart and what it's actually there for, then how are we supposed to prevent something like heart failure after a heart attack? Um, and, and to me, that's a, that was a big thing. And, 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 uh, and, you know, we can get more into the details of that if you want, but, uh, you know, using infrared sauna way more regularly, um, and being exposed to infrared light and, and ways of getting blood flowing um, other than um, a beating heart because uh, it, it doesn't really move the blood as effectively as we think uh, were a huge part of my my routine in, in recovering. And um, and like I said, my, my heart function is normal. No, no heart failure or anything like that. Mm. Well, actually, that's interesting. That That's definitely something I wanted to explore with you. Um, I mean, I wanted to get into diet and a heart, you know, as you see it, a heart healthy diet because there's so many myths in that area too. But but I know you talk a lot about sauna and some other lifestyle things that you that you've done that have been really helpful. Why, why is the sauna so good for the heart and for moving the blood and, and all that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, first off, the, the research on infrared sauna and, and cardiovascular health is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I don't think there's one study that hasn't shown benefit and uh, in especially infrared, but even, you know, um, finished saunas, you know, without infrared light, just steam saunas or, or um, just heat you up kind of saunas, you know, they're, even though they're beneficial. Um, and so I don't understand why there's not infrared sauna in like every cardiac center, cardiac rehab center in the United States or in the world, um, it, just based on how phenomenal the research is on it. Um, but the reason that it is, is really interesting. So um, we have to start with kind of a discussion on water. And so water is this unique liquid that behaves um, unlike any other liquid, um, in that it can hold energy, 
uh, it can hold radiant energy uh, and that can come from many different places uh, it can come from you know the sun can come from different forms of light and come from contact with the earth you know we can come from other humans other living things um, we can absorb this radiant energy and uh, this is this is largely based on the work out of uh, University of Washington by Gerald Pollack and others before him too like Gilbert Lang and um, but um, yeah water has this ability to hold energy and when it holds energy and it's next to a hydrophilic surface so a water loving surface it actually structures itself very specifically um, uh, by breaking certain bonds and, and binding up in other ways um, and this structure it actually kind of creates like this this fourth phase of water um, we've been told there's solid liquid gas but it can actually structure itself into like what's kind of like gel state um, so think of like jello. Um, and so uh, it turns out that there are certain, you know, most of the water in our bodies is in this state. There's water in the blood, which is not in this state. Um, but some of the water in the blood does structure itself onto the lining of arteries, which are which is a hydrophilic surface. Um, and when this happens, a few things, um, it does a few things. One, it helps protect the lining of the artery because another nickname for this type of water is called exclusion zone water because it kind of excludes things that are not it. So it, it kind of forms this barrier uh, between the hydrophilic surface and whatever else is in the middle or on the other side. And so it kind of protects the artery. So an intact uh, layer of this fourth phase water on the lining of the artery could be very useful for protecting the artery from getting damaged um, and then developing atherosclerosis. But the other thing that it does is that um, in Dr. Pollock's lab, they've shown that if you if you put this like in a tube, like if you put like a water, a hydrophilic tube in water that's that's energized, then, you know, the structured water forms around the tube and the water starts flowing um, with no other outside force. It just creates this energy gradient by the way that it forms. And once water starts flowing one way, it continues to flow. And they've actually proven this uh, in animals now in a chick embryo. They've actually shown that this is the case, that they after they stop the heart from beating, that the, the blood still continues to move. Uh, as long as they provide energy to um, the arteries, you know, energy to the system that it is. Uh, and so the blood moves more or less on its own and doesn't really require uh, a beating heart. Uh, and so uh, the heartbeat does create a pulse. It does get, you know, blood moving through the, the heart itself. Um, but the blood also, it moves on its own by this mechanism. And so then we have to ask ourselves, well, you know, what creates, what, what energizes the body? How can we, you know, or energizes the water in the body and how can we, you know, energize it so that when it does get next to these hydrophilic surfaces, um, that it can move. And so one of those things is infrared light. So infrared light is probably the most, is the energy most absorbed by water. And so that's why infrared saunas are extremely useful because they help form this fourth phase water, which protects the arteries, which gets blood moving, um, quickly. Um, so people with heart failure have pooling up of blood. Like it's just phenomenal how much better their heart functions. The ejection fraction increases, um, the swelling stuff goes down, uh, the heart just, uh, it, it's more efficient, uh, when people use saunas. And so, um, really, really important, uh, aspect I think of healing, um, for the heart and the cardiovascular system in general is, is using these infrared saunas. Mm, mm. And, and, and what do you, what do you say? Like, what, like once a day kind of thing or getting in the sauna or? Yeah, that's what I try and do. Um, I try and get in at least once a day for at least like 20 minutes. But uh, some days when I don't want to get sweaty and I got to go back to the office or something, um, I'll just sit in one just at like 90 degrees for like 45 to minutes to an hour. Um, so I just I, I don't really sweat at that temperature. I just stay in there and get exposure to the light because that's important. I mean, sweating is also very useful 
a useful thing that saunas create because it helps you detoxify. Um, and, uh, and, um, but, uh, just getting exposure to the light on your body and energizing the system is, is good. And, and people may think, you know, that sounds crazy that the blood moves on its own, but like there are plenty of examples, like the lymphatic system doesn't have a pump, mm. but you know, the, the liquid moves through that, the fluid, lymphatic fluid moves through that, um, pretty effectively. Uh, and, but also like, you know, how does a, how does the tree get the water from the roots all the way up to the leaves? You know, like there's no pump there. Um, you know, this, these are the types of mechanisms that we observe in nature too. It's, it's the structuring of water that provides the energy gradient that creates flow. Mm, that's fascinating. That really is. Um, Steven, any, any other lifestyle strategies that you use be, beyond sauna? Um, or is that the big, that's the big one? That, that was the big one for my healing process, but also, you know, due to the circumstances that were happening in my life. And I think that, that, uh, were a big factor in why I had a heart attack. I was, I was pretty, I was under a lot of stress and got some very stressful news a few days before. And, um, and so I've been, you know, utilizing a lot of stress relieving techniques. Cause that's another thing that we don't, isn't focused on as much when it comes to heart disease is the imbalance in the autonomic nervous system and the effect it has on the heart. Um, so I've been utilizing a lot of different stress relieving techniques, whether it's meditating or gratitude journals or just, you know, changing your perspective on things, uh, hot, cold therapy, um, breathing exercises, things like that. Mm, that's great. And I know you mentioned that when you were in the hospital that, that the, um, the cardiac rehab nurse, um, offered a diet to prevent heart failure. And it was, I think it was pretty, a, di a diet, pretty heavily, heavy in processed foods and carbohydrates. What have, what have you found in your own research and, and with yourself personally, what do you see as the optimal diet, you know, and, and, and I'd love to hear also specifically about, you know, what you eat for, for yourself personally, um, for, you know, for optimizing heart health. Yeah. So I mean, diet's a huge topic and there's been this, you know, big focus on diet and heart disease. And, and despite my best efforts, you know, to broaden the conversation on heart disease, um, about more than diet and cholesterol and things like that, it ended up being the largest chapter in my book, just cause there's so much to get through. There's so much information out there to, to kind of write about, um, on this topic. And, um, I think ultimately what the best diet for heart disease and for all disease and just preventing all disease is one that creates metabolic flexibility. Um, and that just means that your body um, is able to use different fuel types or different fuel sources, whether it's fats or carbohydrates, um, to fuel itself. Uh, and unfortunately, there are, there are diets out there um, that kind of create this, this narrow-minded um, or this narrow way of, of burning fuel, like it's one or the other. Um, because of how different fuel sources are burned. Like usually people are burning, um, like on a standard American diet, people are burning only carbohydrates and never really get into a state where they burn too many um, fats or ketones for fuel. Um, so there are many diets out there that can create metabolic flexibility. Um, and in, in general, um, any whole foods diet, any diet that is void of processed foods is going to create a situation where you're um, you're you're metabolically healthy um, to an extent, and there are some that can create more metabolic flexibility than others. Like a ketogenic diet um, can really get you into a fat burning mode and making ketones and burning ketones for fuel as well. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to be on this true ketogenic diet where you know 70% of your calories are coming from fat in order to to uh, I guess maintain or preserve metabolic flexibility. And so 
you know, there are even there are even vegan diets that can create metabolic flexibility. I don't recommend vegan diets because I think that you're going to be void of other nutrients over time, uh, important nutrients. And I think that um, getting adequate protein is is really essential, especially as we age for preventing disease. Um, but in general, like if we talk about what's the best diets, one that creates metabolic flexibility. And the number one rule of metabolic flexibility is to eat whole foods. Um, I tell people that the biggest things they should avoid are are grains. Um, that's all grains, you know, wheat, barley, rye, oats. I don't think that those are the best thing for human consumption. There, there are better ways to eat them than others. But even if you eat like a long fermented sourdough that gets rid of a lot of toxins from from bread, it's still not a food that's going to give you the most bang for your buck. Um, and there are better foods you could be eating. Um, so grains and then sugars, especially added sugars. Um, but even, but, you know, small amounts of natural sugars are, are just fine. Um, and then, um, and then vegetable oils, that's the big one. Vegetable oils, um, when we, when they came into our diet, you know, around the early 1900s, um, we started seeing rises in disease and there's trends and there's just associational trends, but you can see that when we started eating more vegetable oils, that obesity, uh, diabetes, heart disease all started to climb. Um, we started replacing these, uh, we started replacing saturated fats with the unsaturated fats, that we're in that that come with the vegetable oils. So I think that's if I was to say someone do one thing um, in their diet to prevent disease, especially heart disease, is get rid of vegetable oils. And that just means, you know, all those oils that you know the fast foods are fried in everything from peanut oil to sunflower oil to canola oil, soy oil, all those different types of oils. Um, I would I would get them out of your diet. Um, but in general, like you know, what I eat is I eat you know. I center my diet around animal foods. Those are the foods that are going to give you the most bang for your buck um, as far as nutrient density, but also ability of your body to absorb those nutrients. Um, and, you know, people would say, well, what about the saturated fat and all that? And we can go into that if you like. But um, but in general, it's to center around those foods because those give me the most nutrients. And then I, you know, fill it up with, you know, other fats like using butter and things, but also vegetables. Um, and I think that, vegetables um, are, are perfectly fine. Uh, some people are like completely against them and and uh, other people would say that that's the only thing you should eat is, is vegetables. And I think that, you know, they're they're fine though, but we shouldn't center our diet around them because it is hard for us to extract nutrients from a lot of vegetables. Um, and uh, fiber makes it hard for us to uh, extract things from them. Um, and But in general, they're whole foods. So, you know, I'm pro them. Uh, I'm pro any whole food diet. Um, that's that's what's going to preserve metabolic flexibility. But I eat a lot of animal foods, vegetables, um, and uh, and that that's really it. You know, I ate some berries, um, and and that that's really that's really it. I send my data on those things, and you can get a lot of variation with that. What are Stephen? What are the saturated fats that you eat and cholesterol-rich foods? Like what? So for people. You know, because we've just been ingrained for so long that those are the foods, you know, as you talk about the diet heart um, hypothesis and how we've been ingrained that those foods cause heart disease. But but what are the you know, what are the um, saturated fats and cholesterol rich foods that you eat in your diet? Uh, I mean, I eat egg yolks. Uh, I eat lots of beef um, and pork um, and I eat uh, some dairy, mainly like yogurt Um and butter, uh, those types of things. Um, that's the stuff I eat. I, I eat some organ meats, um, you know, a few times a week. I get some of those in there because they're probably the most nutrient dense food on the planet. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we, we, we talk about like, 
the, the idea that cholesterol or saturated fats cause heart disease. And a lot of that is based off some faulty science in the, in the fifties and sixties that was done, um, that we can go through that story if you'd like to, but, but a lot of it also is due to the fact that we, we observed like high fatty acids in the blood, like high triglycerides. That's a, that's a much better marker for whether or not someone's going to have disease, um, especially heart disease. If they have high triglycerides in the blood, that's a better marker of, than like high LDL. Um, and the reason that happens is because the metabol- metabolism literally breaks from a, a standard American diet or a, a processed food diet with the vegetable oils and processed grains and sugars and things. That breaks the metabolism. When that happens, fatty acids start spilling into the blood. So we see these fatty acids spilling out of the cells into the bloodstream and people think, oh, it's the fats, you know. Um, but in reality, it was the processed food diet, the processed carbohydrates and sugars and vegetable oils that are creating that situation. And I guess you could understand, especially early on, we didn't have the technology to really know that you start seeing fats in the blood. You assume, oh, it must be because they eat fats in the diet, but that's just not the case. It's just not how the body works. Mm, absolutely. So, uh, Stephen, for anybody who's listening, who's maybe feeling a bit fearful, like you know, as you said, there was a lot of fear when you were in the hospital and a lot of things were being thrown at you, recommendations and this and that. Um, you know, what would you tell somebody who's sort of feeling the fear and maybe not sure what direction to turn in term, terms of their health? Maybe they're being given recommendations that don't seem to make sense, um, but they're facing a lot of fear. What, what what might you tell them? Well, it is really tough because, you know, I work with clients online and uh, a number of them come to me and they're just they're just completely confused, you know, because there's so much information out there. So one person says this, another person says that. Um, so I I try and provide this kind of voice of reason, this non-dogmatic thing. I, I'm not trying to, you know, push one specific diet or one specific approach. It's it's all kind of individualized and, but you know, but it's it's really about finding, um, a, a, I guess. A, you need like a really good philosophy of health. You have to have that. You can't just be going out there looking for the next best thing or, um, well, this guy's got, you know, a lot of, um, you know, uh, I guess credentials or whatever. So, um, I'll listen to that guy or whatever. Um, you really got to find a philosophy of health, um, one that really makes sense to you. And then you have to, you have to find information, um, that, that fits that philosophy, you know, I mean, if your philosophy is that the best way to create health is by taking a bunch of medications, then Western medicine sounds perfect for you. Um, I don't think that's going to work out very well for for people, and I don't recommend that. Um, but you you really have to think about health in in the sense of of your philosophy. You know, you can't just say, "Oh, there's there's uh, this is the way you stay healthy," and because this guy says so. You know, you have to think about it in the context of the way you want to live your life and the goals you have, and 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 really see what resonates with you. And you may, you may find a bunch of things that don't work. Um, that's what I did. You know, I, I, you know, for years, people just think I just woke up and, and live the way I live. And it's like, no, it's been years and years of, of trial and error and finding new information and constant reading. And unfortunately, that's the way that it, it is. If you want to, if you really want to achieve health, you have to do the work, you have to do the research. Um, and you have to, you have to start with creating a philosophy of health and not just a, a habit uh, or or routine. You know, it has to be based in a, in a philosophy. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. Just a couple final questions here, Stephen. What does it mean to be human in your eyes in 2022? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, 
what does it mean to be human? Uh, I think, you know, and there's a lot of information on this in the book and, and it's really interesting when you, when you really look at what causes disease and what causes heart disease, it's a lack of, um, it's a lack of humans, uh, being in their, their natural environment, the environment they involved, involved in for millions of years. And so what it means to be human is to, is to put put yourself back and at least as much as you can back into an environment that, that is a human, like a true human environment, one that humans were in well before we created the environment we have today. And that means one where you're exposed to nature. That means one where you're interacting with human beings. We're, we are a very, very social species. Um, and, and, and that, that social connectedness is required for health. Um, you know, seeing people's faces and, um, and talking and communicating is very, very important for, for our health. Um, eating real food, like, you know, food that we would have gotten out in, out in the woods, like real actual food, like that's what it means to be human, I think. And, um, and also being in touch with something greater than yourself, like, you know, whatever that may be, it doesn't have to be anything in particular. There's no, there's no right way to practice a spirituality. Um, as long as it is serving you and helping you, um, helping you do better things in the world, um, then there's no such thing as the, as the correct one. Um, but those types of things, I think is what it really means to be human. And unfortunately, I think in many cases we've, we've lost touch with that on, on an individual basis. Mm, well said. Stephen, final question. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, say 30 years or so, what words of wisdom would your current self share with your younger self? Um, I'd, I'd probably say to my five-year-old self, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd say something along the lines of like, and hopefully my five-year-old self could grasp it, but, um, just because you find a truth for yourself doesn't mean it's true for everybody else. Um, and everybody's at a different place. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't share your truth with somebody. But you definitely shouldn't be offended if they don't find it that to be their truth as well, because um, you, 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 you never know where they're at and what, where they're at in their journey. And and maybe maybe you sharing that with them is the first time, and maybe four times down the road when someone else shares that same thing, they they come around and you know you'd be happy to be the first, or maybe they never come around and they just disagree with you, and that's fine too. Um, but we we shouldn't be offended if people don't feel the same way as we do, and we should all recognize that we have different. Um, different journeys and different things that have led us to what we believe today. And, and that's okay. Hmm. That's great. Steven, where can people go that want to find out more about you and want to get the book? Where, where should they go? Yeah. So the, um, the book is, is on Amazon. It's also on Barnes and Noble and on the publisher's website, Chelsea Green. So people can pre-order it now. It comes out April 7th. Um, and so that's there They also have my website, uh, which is resourceyourhealth.com, And I have my blog on there that I don't post too much on, but I used to post a lot more, um, but also like, you know, certain products I recommend or my health coaching or health consulting is, is on that website there. And that, and then also I'm on social media on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter, just DR Stephen Hussey. Um, that's my, my handle for those. And so people can find me there as well. Stephen, thank you so much. What a what an honor to have you on the show. You, you've written a great, great book, and uh, I mean, it's really well written too. Um, that that was what really struck me um, with lots of stories in it. So you 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 take us through the science, but you also tell some great stories. Um, so thank you so much for coming on today. No problem. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to The Drew Perlman Show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. In the words of Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, and catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover, and stay well, everyone. 